inspiring conversations with the most compelling performers, educators, authors, and product manufacturers of our time. This is the show about all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast. The Knights Chamber Orchestra started out as a simple gathering of local musicians, but has grown to be a Grammy-nominated ensemble that has even recorded and collaborated with none other than Yo-Yo Ma himself. Today on the podcast, my special guest is Agnes Marchion, who shares what it's like to perform and tour with this amazing ensemble, and why they prefer to play standing up most of the time. We also discuss her musical upbringing and some tips for younger students on how to deal with life when times get tough. I'm your host, Sean Perrin, and you're listening to the Clarinet Podcast at clarinet.com. If you'd like to listen to an extended, ad-free version of today's episode and many others, head to clarinet.com slash subscribe. Don't forget to visit the Clarinet store for links to buy official apparel and special offers, products, and services, some of which are available exclusively to our listeners. And of course, I love to hear from listeners all over the world. If you'd like to get in touch with me or be a guest on the program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button at our website. Again, that's clarinet.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and thank you especially to our sponsors for helping make it all possible. Have you wanted to try Daddario reeds but weren't quite sure which to choose? Here's how to decide. Reserve reeds come in a white and blue box. They feature a traditional blank and are perfect for those who want to focus sound with the quickest response possible. Reserve classic reeds come in a white and purple box. They feature a thicker blank that provides an expanded tonal color palette, clarity of articulation, and added flexibility. And the new Reserve Evolution reeds come in a white and yellow box. They feature our thickest blank and have a heavy spine for added projection and exceptional tonal depth, warmth, and flexibility. You'll have to try it to believe it. Try Reserve Reads now at your local music store or head to clarinet.com reads to buy a box right now. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new Vocalese mouthpiece, Complex Resonance at a Reasonable Price. Get yours at www.bakunmusical.com and save 10% on any accessory purchase with code CLARINET at checkout. Agnes, welcome to the program. Thanks, Sean. I want to talk all about the Chamber Orchestra, but first, I want our listeners to be able to get the chance to know you as a clarinetist. So what was it that ignited your passion for the clarinet? When I was little, like three, four, five years old, um, my mom is a pianist and one of her closest friends was a clarinetist and they would do chamber music readings at our house. And she was, you know, the kind of family friend that you called aunt. So I... um. I wanted to play clarinet like my Aunt Beth, and that's kind of how things started. Actually ended up being like my first clarinet teacher. Of course, you went on to study with some pretty interesting people. Um, would you want to share a couple stories about maybe what it was like studying with uh, Anthony Giliotti, Yehuda Galad, or Donald Montanaro? You know, they're all really wonderful, all very different but all have really great end products. Mr. Giuliani was just maybe the absolute nicest man you could come across. Um, 
I studied with him for not not too long a period of time. You know, I felt like I really got a lot from studying with him. There was a period of time I had no uh, clarinet lessons at all. Um, so he was kind of like my first teacher coming back into lessons. So it was good. He kind of gave me some solid ground to stand on. Um, I mean, of course, Mr. Montanaro, wonderful teacher for, oh, for so many different things, tone production and, um, really a perfectionist and, um, Yehuda Gilad. I mean, for those of people that met him, they can attest to that. He's really, he's his own character and he really, um, takes a person and makes them the best clarinet player that they can be. Doesn't try to necessarily mold them into, you know, every student sounding the same, playing the same equipment. You know, he really takes the individual and produces the best player that they can be. So he's, he's a very, very special teacher, but, but, Really, I mean, all three of them were really great influences for me. What happened during this section of your life that you weren't taking clarinet lessons? Was that uh, just a break from music or? What had happened is my father passed away in my freshman year of high school. I had just gotten involved with um, the big youth orchestra in the, at least when I was a youth orchestra age uh, in Philadelphia. It was called Philadelphia Youth Orchestra run by Joseph Primavera, who was, um, who also has passed away, but really uh, he was just an amazing youth orchestra director. And um, that's actually kind of what kept me going. The lessons kind of at that point in time became secondary. I'm one of four kids. My mom kind of had a lot on her plate and uh, I continued playing through youth orchestra and I was involved in a, a chamber music setting called Settlement Music School. So I would go from youth orchestra to woodwind quintet or woodwind quartet. And it was the best part of my week or my Saturdays that I was just playing from like 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. And, uh, you know, met people I'm still friends with today that I'll see either at, you know, concerts or, you know, through your travels, playing in different places. But um, it wasn't really until I got back into college that I kind of started taking regular lessons again. So it's not like you took a break from playing. It sounds like you were very, very active during that time. Yes. Just, just not with lessons. Right. It just kind of, you know, that's the way my high school years unfolded. You know, I, I can totally relate to that because when I, I always felt bad about it. Um, when I was younger, I never really knew to have lessons. My parents weren't um, all that musical. In fact, I always have this funny story. There was a offstage horn part during one of my university wind ensemble concerts and it was being played by my friend in college. Anyways, my dad came to the concert and uh, the horn player walked out on stage after playing the offstage part. And my dad turned to my mom and said, can you believe that John would just show up late like that? <laughs> so so the, it's not that they're, you know, didn't want the best for me, but they weren't that musically inclined up to the point of not even noticing that something like that was happening. So, so, um, but I also didn't really have proper lessons um, until college. And, uh, do you feel that that kind of the sort of period in your life when you're able to just explore the music in a way that you wanted, do you think that helped shape you as a musician? Had I not been involved in these, in like a youth orchestra and, you know, a music school ensemble setting that it would have kind of derailed me a little bit since I was already going through so much, uh, you know, turmoil with having to deal with, you know, the death of a parent, 
more so than anything actually musically or exploring that. I don't even think that was kind of on my radar. I think I really wasn't super happy in high school. Our band program wasn't great. So I really just lived for those Saturdays, you know, and I think if I had decided not to major in music, I still would have just lived for those Saturdays as a high schooler, you know, which tells me that, you know, I think music is just really a really important thing to have kids exposed to. I mean, not any more important necessarily than anything else, but um, that was a really uh, positive influence for me in high school and just kind of kept me, kept me where I needed to be. Again, I don't think it was like exploring this or exploring that. Like, I mean, it, that sounds like that would be an amazing thing if that were the case, but to be honest, I just don't even think I would have been cognizant of anything like that. Oh, totally. And, you know, I feel that in some ways that is still um, such valuable experience. And I definitely feel in my past um, that I might have burned out of music had I been, you know, forced to go through a lot of the repertoire when I was 12, 13. Sure. And honestly, so much of the repertoire, I mean, every individual's different. Every student's different. Everybody's uh, playing experiences are different. But as a 12, 13, 14 year old, so much of our repertoire that's considered standard, I mean, seems to really uh, understand what you're playing. It just seems very far beyond what most, even if they're extremely talented uh, middle school or high school students, really beyond what, maybe not technically, just musically, you know, something like Debussy, Premier Rhapsody, or, you know, it's, it's so difficult like to really find a voice with that piece. I think at that age, well, it's one thing to play the notes. It's something else to play the music. Exactly. Exactly. So it's kind of maybe good that I wasn't quite exposed to that. I just wouldn't have been ready for something like that at that age. I know that a lot of our listeners actually are in high school. So I'm wondering, could you offer maybe two pieces of advice? The first one being, what would you say to musicians in high school who are, currently also feeling like they're not enjoying high school and it's not a period of their life that they're going to be really happy about looking back or something. I know there's a lot of stress these days for, for kids. Um, and also what, what advice kind of on deciding that music was the path for you? Well, I would say to high school students that, and it's so hard to have perspective. I talk about this very often I have a stepdaughter who's 13 and I'm always really, if there's one thing I could impart on her, it would just be the knowledge that it does pass. And, you know, maybe whatever it is, the music department's not good. You know, maybe you haven't found uh, your people yet or whatever it is that just makes high school that not great experience. Um, it does pass and things generally tend to get better. I don't know many people who want to go back to their high school days. <laughs> so I would yeah. say try to find things maybe outside of high school. Again, that's kind of what saved me. If there's any um, youth orchestras or county orchestras or doing um, like in New Jersey, there's something, you know, it's like district orchestras and then you can audition for all state if you make the district orchestra so or, or band wind ensemble. So, I mean, trying to find something, uh, maybe there's a few people in your band or wind ensemble or orchestra that you can 
form a group with and get together. I had a student who used to go play at nursing homes. Um, there were a group of people in her high school that actually organized stuff themselves. And I thought that was like an amazing thing for a group of high school students to be doing, you know? So I think sometimes you just have to make your own way um, instead of like waiting for things to happen. Um, and I would say, how did I know I want to, I mean, for me, I've just always wanted to be a musician. My parents were both of my parents and it just was my, my younger brother is also, it was just very natural. And, and I didn't particularly like school. Um, I didn't particularly try very hard in school because I just knew that I, I wanted to be a clarinetist. So um, I think if there's just this burning feeling that you have inside and you just can't imagine doing anything else, then I think that kind of answers your question. I, I can imagine though for students that have parents that aren't musicians and that aren't very knowledgeable in going into that area to study in college that um, they might have some resistance. I can just remember being in high school and having friends whose parents were kind of adamant about having kind of like a backup uh, career or a backup major. And, you know, even people that I went to college with that were amazing ended up doing other things. I mean, they, they went through, got a performance degree and then still decided to do something else and they're doing well and they're happy. So if the encouragement and the support is there from the parents, you know, it's, it's kind of at least worth a try. I think, you know, it's, it is a hard profession though. I'm, I'm certainly not going to sugarcoat it. It's, <laughs> it can be tough and you just kind of have to stick with it. Well, I love that. And, you know, this timing is so perfect for this conversation because um, I recently talked to uh, three authors who wrote a book called College Prep for Musicians. And one of the chapters in there was how to decide um, if it's really for you, the value of actually just focusing on music and, and trying not to have a backup. Because they, they said something like, if you think you need a backup, then you definitely... It might not be for you. <laughs> yeah, it might <laughs> right. not be, you know. And, and the third thing they talked about was how to get parents comfortable, especially non-musical parents, comfortable with the career path. Um, I remember mine being really confused, like after I finished my undergrad, okay, now what? And I was like, well, now I can start freelancing or I can take auditions or I can get a master's. And that seemed like an odd thing to them, very almost horrifying, but it turned out okay. So... <laughs> What were your years like after graduating your um, your programs then and starting life as a musician who is freelancing and looking for gigs? Um, it was very difficult. I, I will absolutely say this. And this is something I'm always very honest about, especially as I've gotten older. Um, it always seems like there's some embarrassing thing when you first get out of school. I had a lot of student debt. And I needed to be making money. I couldn't sit around and wait for my phone to just ring. You know, there wasn't like a magic. <sighs> yeah, it, it was it was hard. I mean, I and I needed health insurance. <laughs> I mean, these are the realities of, you know, not leaving school with a job. And I think a lot of people face them. But I also think everyone comes from a different financial background. And some people are very fortunate that they have parents that are able to financially aid them 
when needed. Uh, unfortunately, I just wasn't in that situation. I mean, my mom is wonderful, don't get me wrong, but I just wasn't, she wasn't in the situation where um, I could just kind of wait for the phone to ring. So, I mean, I worked a non-music job part-time to get the health insurance I needed, to get some of the money I needed to be paying for stuff. But I'd say it took a good few years before I could stop that job and be really supporting myself on doing some private teaching. Um, I was also involved in an El Sistema program that I did several days a week, um, which I really enjoyed doing. And and then of course, you know, performing. So, it, and now it, it's mostly performing that I do. I do still do some private teaching, but um, I think that you really have to be willing to hustle a little bit. And that doesn't always mean with music, you know, that might mean supplementing your income somehow. I mean, you know, people make jokes about, you know, waiters and waitresses and in New York, everyone's an actor, you know, who's a waiter or waitress, but in a way, anything in the arts, it, it, I mean, unless you're lucky enough to make your break, like immediately when school's finished, there really might be some hustling involved and you have to be okay with that and at peace with that. And that pill can be hard to swallow at the time. Well, let's move on from the past, because although I, I love this conversation and could talk about it for probably another two hours, I also want to talk about the fact that you are playing with this Grammy-nominated ensemble called the King's Chamber Orchestra, and you've also played, of course, from those you know humble beginnings we're talking about with the New York Philharmonic, the Philadelphia Orchestra, and numerous other ensembles, chamber festivals, etc. So let's talk about your life today. What does your average week look like involved in all of this amazing work that you're doing? And uh, could you expand on the Knights Chamber Orchestra for me? So the Knights generally, I would say if you kind of totaled and averaged out uh, all the projects that we do in a year, it might be like 15 or 16 weeks. They're just spread out throughout the year. And they vary in length. Sometimes if it's a tour that we're on, that might be three or four weeks. And, you know, that would be like one chunk of a project. Sometimes something's only one week, you know, and we just have a few days of rehearsal leading up to a few concerts. Um, and the repertoire, because the um, chamber orchestra itself varies in size all the way down from chamber music. I mean, earlier in the year, I played Mozart clarinet quintet, which of course is always amazing to play up through, um, you know, like a Beethoven symphony size orchestra. Maybe sometimes we miss out a little bit, in my opinion, as a, as a clarinetist on the really juicy rep, <laughs> maybe something like a Brahms symphony, we generally might not go there. But um, I've learned surprisingly over the past nine years how much rep there is. And one thing about the group that I'm very thankful for personally is that um, I was not exposed to a ton of modern or contemporary music. Um, I went to a very traditional college. I want to say if we did something post-Stravinsky, that was really crazy. So um I've done a lot of rep or smaller chamber symphonies like Adams Chamber Symphony or Ligeti Chamber Symphony. Right now we're playing the Addis Chamber Symphony. And uh, I mean, stuff that when I look at it now, like it still kind of scares me initially because I'm like, oh, my gosh, this just whether it's meter or, you know, or rhythms or whatever it is, just it looks so intimidating. And it's just because I had not been exposed to that 
until very much post-college. So I'm very thankful that I've been exposed to that now, you know, having played with the Knights. To get to do something like Mozart clarinet quintet or Schubert octet, and then to also be doing, you know, like some of the chamber symphonies I just mentioned, um, it's it's pretty cool, you know, to have that kind of vast repertoire um, in a more intimate setting because the orchestra never gets so large. Uh, in size. So it's a trade-off, you know, from maybe I can't play Brahms or Shostakovich or whatever, but then the trade-off is working more intimately with my colleagues on music that I probably wouldn't normally get a chance to play. So I find it really interesting the way you look back on the the music, because to someone like Debussy, he's looking back at someone like, uh, you know, Schumann is probably a more contemporary composer. And someone like Stravinsky would have looked back at Debussy as someone like a contemporary composer. And now we're in a situation where I feel like we almost focus on the past too much. We would still consider Debussy a contemporary composer. And it's been almost, you know, like a lot of time since Stravinsky's sort of reign. So where do you think that puts music today? And, and how can we start to encourage the exploration of those new composers as the status they deserve in our society? I think a lot of universities and colleges and uh, even in cities, like I'm using Philadelphia as an example, because that would be my closest city. There's groups that are forming um, within the college, within the university, within a city that are really, and of course, New York is full of them, uh, that are really dedicating, you know, whether it's that they, in a university setting, maybe, or a conservatory or whatever, they they join that uh, uh, contemporary ensemble for the semester. Or of course, in this situation, uh, you know, out of, outside of school, there's groups that really, uh, whether it's they focus just on living composers or, you know, just doing more what, you know, quote unquote, contemporary works. I think it is more prevalent. I mean, even I know that the conservatory I went to for my undergrad, they compared to when I was there and I graduated 15, 16 years ago, almost. They, I mean, it is much different now with their exposure to present day or um, not too far past composers, uh, which I think is kind of great. I wish that, you know, uh, I would have had that experience because when you start out as a freelancer, if you don't have a lot of experience uh, playing that kind of music, now uh, a lot of the music I, well, let me say not quite half of the music I play is going to be maybe a little bit more in the genre of what would be considered contemporary. You know, every time you see a music that looks like that, you don't want to panic every time you see that. So I think the more exposure that students are given in a, especially in the college level and beyond, it's, it's really invaluable, you know? So I do think there is more of that now than there was 10, 20, 30, you know, plus years ago. uh, Finally. I feel like the word contemporary is almost stuck. There's people around me that I know who would probably consider Debussy contemporary music. And there's people who would consider um, a brand new piece contemporary music, but now that spans like a hundred years. So where where does the term kind of really start to have meaning again? And I think it's with the the new music that groups like um, the one you're involved in are being a proponent of and arrangements and things like that. I think we can safely leave some of the innovations of the early 20th century um, in the past now and start looking at the real contemporary, <laughs> the new contemporary. Yeah. 
No, and you're right. What is contemporary? I mean, something that it had to be written in the past 10 years, 20 years. And you're right. Some people think 100 years ago is still contemporary. I mean, it's a great question that I don't think I have an answer to. I have a history prof. I'm sure he thinks Bach is still contemporary. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh, I don't want to talk about music history. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So no, but I it's a good question. It's interesting that the different genres of music now, um, classical music, I mean, uh, is sparking what at least I notice is it's sparking uh, a lot of collaborations with other genres of music that you might not necessarily have put together in the past. instruments that you know you wouldn't maybe associate with classical music whether it be like an electric guitar or some of the world music instruments um yeah it's it's pretty i mean wild's not the right word because i guess what is wild right i mean if i mean these are all very like abstract words in a way i think that uh it's almost like anything goes now, which, you know, I guess unless you're a true traditionalist and you don't want to listen to anything post 1912 or something, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it's, I don't mean every single piece written in the past hundred years is amazing, but um, there's definitely a lot of stuff out there. And I think it draws in a different kind of audience, which I think is invaluable to uh, classical music since a lot of people do consider it maybe somewhat of a dying art to a certain extent. Well, I feel it was led a little off course for the average person by, um, you know, serialism, for example. (laughs) Um, So maybe that's why it feels kind of sort of stagnated. So I know you weren't involved right from the beginning of the Knights Chamber Orchestra. You said you joined in 2010, but I do know that the orchestra itself had a rather humble beginning um, much as we've been kind of discussing today, as far as it says it started as reading parties, or maybe you mentioned that. And how did it go from that all the way to being a Grammy-nominated ensemble that works with the likes of Yo-Yo Ma? I mean, it seems like there's a few steps there that are likely missing. <laughs> <laughs> the two founders, which are two brothers, Eric and Colin Jacobson. Eric also conducts the group. Colin uh, is a violinist. Eric is a cellist, uh, but also does a lot of conducting now. They really were able to transform this group. I mean, from, yeah, reading chamber music, like late night sessions in their apartment, a lot of them just, you know, they were in school together and it kind of just kept building momentum. You know, I think when there's a lot of talented younger i mean you know what's young but i mean when there's a when there's a group of talented young people that are really passionate about what they do and their friends and i know it doesn't seem like well how could everybody be friends but it's a really unique situation i mean you really care about the people you're playing with and i just think you know the combination of everything Uh, And again, with the way that Eric and Colin promoted the group early on and then the group got management and um, Eric and Colin were also involved with Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Ensemble. You know, they became friendly with, for example, um, Keenan Asme, which, you know, I know that you'll you'll speak to. And um, well, of course, Yo-Yo Ma sold with the group and uh, Wu Man, who plays Pipa, we went on a tour with her. Uh, we were on a tour with Bela Fleck because I, I don't, Bela doesn't play with Silk Road Ensemble, but um, some of the string players had, you know, made an album with him. So it's um, 
like a lot of things in life, it's connections. So I think that um, we're able to really play with these amazing soloists because um, people in common, um, you strike up friendships with people. And that's just so much of what the group is, honestly. It's a really unique uh, ensemble, and I've never played in another ensemble like it before. And I'm sure there are others out there, but I just personally... I've never played with a group of people where everybody was so invested in the music, so invested in the group, and so kind of invested in each other as human beings. Well, and you know, it's so funny because I think that this is something really, really common in the pop and rock kind of music world where people decide what kind of music and what they want to play based on who they want to play it with. Um, And so, for example, I have another podcast about a band called Radiohead, which I'm sure that you know. One of the things is Radiohead was just inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame last night, and this they even commented about this. A couple of the members were there, and they said, you know, look, it's it's been the people over the years. We've, we've grown together in what we do. And also on the show here, I had a group, a duet, a rather strange duet, a flute and bass clarinet. And I remember when I asked them this question, I said, why did you decide to do this? And they made their entire ensemble framed around the idea of playing together and the fact that they knew they could get along musically. So I love that the ensemble is so sort of tight this way. And I watched a video of the Yo-Yo Ma recording session and I was going to ask, um, I know you weren't involved in that particular recording, but it looked like, first of all, everyone was having a good time. And that is not a typical sight when you look into a recording session. So, <laughs> so yes, you're very I was, right. was going to ask for the secret there, but I think you just gave it away. Um, but I also noticed that everyone was standing. Is that typical? Yeah, we, we do a fair amount of standing for performances. I think there's something about standing that uh, brings the energy level up, I think for the audience also, but I think as performers, maybe feeling a little bit less constricted um, and maybe just able to even get into the moment more, which I never actually had thought about. I played mostly sitting, not just because I did orchestral, but even I always had teachers that were like, well, if you sound better sitting, play sitting. Like it, it was never really a thing even to be performing solo standing. I mean, a concerto, yes, but not even a recital. I've sat for recitals before. Um, so this this was, again, with the group, my first experience where, oh, we're going to play a symphony standing. And at first I was a little bit like, oh, am I going to get tired or, oh, my embouchure. You know, there's all these things that kind of go through your head but um now I really understand the reasoning for it and I totally I just think it helps everybody dig in more there's something to be said for it for sure well sitting is a passive stance standing is a ready stance so it makes sense that you're able to I don't know convey the immediacy or interaction or honestly it's probably healthier (laughs) yeah right right than being hunched over in a chair for hours at a time. Well, they Absolutely. say that sitting is this generation smoking. It's it's going to be, yeah. you know, it's a, I've never thought about that before, but, you know, what is the implication of, of all these orchestras always sitting? And uh, so, yeah, it's a very, do you know how that decision came about, though? I mean, I'm trying to imagine the first person in the group who was like, hey, let's stand today. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of uh, smaller groups and European groups stand. And I think they just must have liked the presentation that that group gave standing and it just became well like hey why don't why don't we try that i mean some of i mean our uh, obviously the cellos sit uh for the comfort of the bassoonists they usually sit um and we do sit for some pieces uh 
I would say the majority, um, most people feel more comfortable standing. So you said you've toured with the group. Um, would you have any advice for touring as a clarinet player? I mean, I know that altitude for reeds can be a problem and uh, just general traveling tips. I have not experienced the altitude thing in all my years of playing yet, so I'm not going to pretend to even speak to that. Do you play synthetic reeds, though, or are you playing cane? Nope, I just I play on my cane reeds. I think that um, for me on tour, uh, especially depending on how much traveling and a lot of our tours involve uh, really just kind of one and done cities and then the next day you're back on the bus or whatever the situation is, there's not always the time uh, to kind of what I call maintenance practicing, whether it's a specific warm-up that you do or, you know, everybody kind of likes to do uh, something different maybe to feel like they're staying in shape, playing etudes, whatever that is. And there's not a lot of maintenance practice time to be had in some of that situation. For me, that's the hardest thing about being on tour. It's not just the reads. The reads to me become almost secondary. I really like to warm up. I'm like one of those people that likes to play long tones and have like a very specific situation happening. And when I don't get to do that, that actually makes me feel a little bit more frantic than, um, feeling like I need to, you know, work on reads or open up, you know, endless boxes of reads. So of course you want to feel reads supplied, you know, you don't want to just leave with one box of reads and keep your fingers crossed. But um, I, for me, the hardest thing about touring is definitely just maintaining uh, for what I feel like I'm in shape, you know, at playing at my best. I love that. And I'm also someone who's kind of over the mythology of reads. I tend to use reads that I find are more consistent and that I enjoy using. I I don't want to sit around singing to them and, you know, <laughs> doing all this kind of soaking. And I don't know. I've never really been the kind of person who's into that. So No, me neither. Agnes, thanks so much for coming on the show. Where can we find more information about you and also the Knights Chamber Orchestra? Thank you so much, Sean. The Knights website is thenightsnyc.com. And all of our um, upcoming performances, uh, the musicians, uh, everything, you know, is listed on the web page. And um, as far as myself, I keep a very low social media profile, low to nothing. So <laughs> I wish I could uh, say go to my web page or go on to Facebook. I am literally not on anything. So Sorry. That's okay. I'm so envious, actually. I'm starting to really feel that that's uh, becoming a burden on our society and a huge time suck. So I definitely understand. So I just wish that I was actually like 85 years old. So I never had to, you know, do anything. <laughs> Justify online. it. Yeah, totally. Well, you know what? My, my grandfather's 92, 93 just turned. He's somehow active online. I, I, that's I can amazing. understand it. Oh my I gosh. feel lost these days. And not, you know, the, the kids are showing me stuff when I go to schools and it's like, what, what is that? I, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah my three-year-old definitely knows how to swipe an iphone so there you <laughs> yeah, go it's amazing well you know we'll have to thank today for uh the, the hidden star of today's interview is actually i didn't tell you this at the beginning but my daughter we were supposed to leave somewhere at 2 30 but her nap is still continuing which has allowed me to Aww. go go over a bit here she's still asleep somehow so thank you to her for, for staying asleep so we can continue this conversation a bit longer <laughs> than originally planned
thank you so much for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen to your podcasts. You can also check out the website at clarinet.com for over 100 hours of free audio content with the world's greatest clarinet players, manufacturers, and more. If you loved what you heard, I'd love it if you'd support the podcast for as little as $1 per month. As a thank you, you'll get access to extended versions of many episodes, bonus content, and more. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new Vocalese mouthpiece, Complex Resonance at a Reasonable Price. Get yours at www.bakunmusical.com and save 10% on any accessory purchase with code Clarinet at checkout. Don't forget to check out D'Addario's line of Reserve, Reserve Classic, and new Reserve Evolution reads. You can head to your local music store or to clarinet.com reads to buy a box right now. That's all for now. Be sure to tune in next time for more of what's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry on the Clarinet Podcast.